0: This talk about poll hub affirmative action as we have known it for more than 50 years in the US is effectively dead on college campuses. The Supreme Court ended it with an historic ruling this summer and now schools are trying to figure out how to enroll a diverse group of students without it. We're speaking with the president of the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities about this hot topic. Then kids, put down those phones and do your homework. It's my best Mary Griffin imitation. How many millions of times have modern parents said that? In Fact technology is just one reason. American parents say parenting is harder than ever. Professor of Education, Dr. Kathleen Vigil from a college in the Kippseniary, let me check my here. Maris. She's from Maris. She joins us. And we end with a fun fact about something celestial happening next week. let's ease. Stick around. And hi everybody. Welcome to Polo. I'm J.D. Dapper.
1: I'm Barbara Carvalho. I'm Mary Griffith. I'm Athan Hollis. I'm Emily DuPoin.
0: And I'm Lee Waringoff. The Supreme Court's reversal of affirmative action in June raised big questions about what higher education in the U.S. will look like going forward. Will American colleges and universities, for instance, be able to maintain diversity? And will America's future workforce be less diverse as a result of this decision?
2: Now, before we take that look ahead, let's take a step back and get a clear picture of what affirmative action is, what it was intended to do, and what it has accomplished.
0: Well, yeah, let's start with the definition. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, affirmative action is the recruitment and advancement of qualified minorities, women, persons with disabilities, and covered veterans.
2: Since the early 70s, affirmative action has been used by many colleges and universities as a way to achieve a more diverse student body. But there has been pushback since almost the beginning from those who believe that achieving diversity has led to quotas which then prevent other deserving students from gaining admission.
0: As early as 1978, the Supreme Court ruled that public institutions could not set specific racial quotas. And this summer's ruling essentially prohibits these institutions from considering race even as a factor in their acceptances. As a result, many are predicting a severe drop in minority representation on college campuses.
3: As we're talking about experiences and really trying to look at targeted outreach programs, it's going to take a while to understand whether we're going to be able to still field a kind of diverse class or whether we're going to see a step back in terms of the amount of diversity in our classes.
2: Barbara Mystic is the president of the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities. So how will this sea change affect the diversity levels on campuses across the country?
3: Earlier decisions, both in uh, California back in the 90s and in Michigan and the early 2000s. I mean, in each of those cases, the institutions saw a drop in the number of minority students. I do think that there is the potential for that to happen here unless there is specific intentionality. Admissions counselors and admissions offices are going to have to figure out specific pipelines and pathway programs that are not directed to a particular group, but that are offered on a broader, wider range. And, you know, it could be things like dual enrollment programs, specific relationships, perhaps with schools that have lower income students, but it, it won't be essentially about race. It'll have to be a broader brush. So, you know, it, it's going to take some deliberate work to keep the numbers at the same level that they were at before. The court decision did not say anything about the kinds of uh, programs that institutions offer that really help retain students and help students graduate successfully. So things like affinity groups and other um, support services on campus can still be continued. They do have to be offered broadly uh, and not targeted to a particular group.
2: While there was strong support for the concept of affirmative action in the late 60s, decades later, what does the public think about this decision?
0: So there's a Washington post SHAR school poll from October 2022 that found that six in 10 Americans say race should not be considered in college admissions. But they also asked another question. When they asked Americans if they think programs designed to increase racial diversity on college campuses are a good or a bad
2: thing, 64% of adults said they're a good thing. In this past summer, Pew asked Americans whether they approved or disapproved of considering race and ethnicity in the admissions process. 50% disapproved and 33% approved. But the end of affirmative action will likely affect not just college admissions.
0: Yeah, some are predicting over the long term there will be a less diverse applicant pool of new workers. Companies could face tough times when it comes to their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in the future, it could also affect just plain old diversity recruitment uh, within companies.
2: Mystic says employers might not struggle as much with diversity and inclusion as we might think in the future because they are still interested in diversity.
3: I think uh, our uh, employers are very interested in diversity and it, and employers have for many years had affinity groups to support um, both the, the leadership growth and development of women, the leadership growth and development of minority groups. And so those affinity groups can still stay in place. And a lot of uh, employers are still tracking to uh, standards for a more diverse workplace. Plus, they're looking for, uh, you know, they're trying to develop leaders who can lead in a very multicultural diverse world. Employers are still going to look to that. I think what employers are nervous about right now is if this decision impacts the number of minority students that attend colleges, that their primary recruitment is at colleges for their workplace. And so there could be that's trickle down impact for employers and make it harder for employers to find the kind of diversity that they're looking for. Or they might have to look further afield from the United States. They might have to develop more extensive recruitment programs in other countries around the world in order to recruit the kind of diversity that they want in their workplaces.
2: In the most recent Supreme Court case, major companies like Apple, General Electric, Google, Salesforce, and Starbucks argued quote, racial and ethnic diversity enhance business performance, unquote, in their filing supporting Harvard and the University of North Carolina.
0: And while there's no list of colleges and universities that use race as a factor in admissions, many schools do report information about themselves in a standard format. It's called the Common Data Set, or CDS, and they make it available online. Among the items on the CDS is a list of 19 academic and non-academic factors that go into a school's admissions decisions. Schools can rate each factor as very important, important, considered, or not considered.
2: And of the selective schools with publicly available CDS data, all 24 schools that admit fewer than 10% of applicants say they consider race and ethnicity when deciding whom to admit, although only one rated it as an important factor. And among the 48 schools that admit between 10% and 30% of applicants, all but seven consider race and ethnicity in admissions, with five rating it as an important factor.
0: Which begs the question, so what happens now when they can't do that?
3: Well, in the short run, I think it means that institutions are really going to have an evaluation of their admissions policies. That's really important because I think first and foremost, we all want to follow the letter of the law. We want to understand the decision that the Supreme Court Uh, came down with. We want to make sure that, however, we're implementing it in our admissions practices, that it follows that legal framework. So just recently, the Department of Education and the Department of Justice issued guidance on how to follow that, uh, the, the framework of the decision. And I think institutions will work very hard to make sure that their practices do that. So, you know, what that says is that you cannot specifically look at race alone as an admissions criteria that, and what the decision suggested, the justices suggested, is that you really look to the experiences of the individual. Many institutions will have to change their admissions applications. They'll have to revise the, the question that they ask prospective applicants. They might change their essay question. And um, I think it will shift an emphasis uh, what the court said is that you could really talk about your lived experience. So it's sort going of to shift the emphasis to those experiences.
0: So it's going to be interesting to follow colleges and companies after this decision to see how they adjust to what is essentially a new way to admit students.
4: Parenting in general is not an easy task, but now add in constantly fast-changing technology and, boy, do I need a vacation.
1: Well, according to a 2020 Ipsos and Pew Research Center survey, 66% of parents believe that parenting is harder compared to 20 years ago. And you're right, technology is a big player in the shift.
4: Technology is advancing so quickly, and kids are generally pretty quick to pick it up. So it's hard for parents to stay on top of what's okay and what's not. In fact, 26% of parents in that poll said that technology, overall, is a major factor making parenting more challenging but it's more than just the latest gadgets. Here's Dr. Kathleen Vigil, the Director of Graduate Education Programs at Marist College. Dr. Vigil teaches about the use of technology with children, and she explains the protections available to prevent children from using technology for the wrong purposes
5: at a young age. There are some legal protections for that. You know, there is the Child Online Privacy Protection Act, which means, that websites are not allowed to gather any data on students and you've experienced this because anybody who goes onto a website like a social media platform or some other websites it'll say what's your birthday you know and if you put in a birthday that's under 13 years old they won't let you interact with the platform so there are some protections but of course kids could put in a birthday that's not their real birthday so it's not it's not foolproof and you know they don't understand you know so much about keeping their data private and so they end up putting in a lot of Information about themselves and their surroundings that really other people shouldn't have access to when they're
1: children. Yeah, and social media is a big part of that challenge, too. Twenty one percent of parents in that 2020 Pew study pointed to social media as the biggest factor in parenting being more difficult today. Ugh, social media.
4: I struggle with not just social media, but with technology in general with my boys. And often I find myself wondering if I'm holding my boys back socially by not letting them engage. They're 9 and 10, and their friends use TikTok and those types of things. And what's even more alarming is that kids in general these days are exposed to a whole range of things at such young ages. Pew found 14% of parents feel that technology gives their children access to content and experiences they may not be ready for, like mature images, videos, bullying, interactions with strangers, and all the other stuff we see in social media as adults.
1: Then there's a the screen, you know, the smartphones and iPads the CDC advises that children should engage in a minimum of 60 minutes of physical activity daily. The time children spend on activities like watching TV, playing video games, and browsing the internet could instead be utilized for physical activity. Mary, how do you deal with the phones and games and TVs (laughs) with your kids? Well,
4: it's really hard. There have been days where I've had to make my boys close their laptops and go outside, and Yeah, we don't really have a set amount of time in place for their screen time, but I'm always aware of the amount of time they're on their devices. Here's what Dr. Vigil thinks.
5: Parents can really stress the fact that technology is not toys. You know, technology is a tool. And so if you can think of your technology as not an entertainment device, but actually as a way to get something done. And, and parents can model that too. Like, I'm going to look up some information or I'm going to look at this information on YouTube because I need to change something in the house or they can really show that I'm not just going to sit there gaming all day on my tablet or something. But teachers can also be helpful with this because they can do things in their classroom like, like use technology for problem-based learning. So here's a problem. Here's a problem we have in the world today or here's a problem I want you to try and solve. Let's use our technology to find information
1: and work on solutions and, and analyze and use data, things like that. It's a real challenge to balance screen time with other activities. I think even as adults, some of us struggle with this. But parents today seem to be navigating uncharted territory here. And it's pretty incredible what experts are
4: finding. According to the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, children between the ages of 8 and 12 in the United States typically spend 4 to 6 hours per day engaging with screens, while teenagers spend up to 9 hours doing so. But
5: Dr. Vigil shares ways that parents can prevent this much screen time. There are parental controls, you know, on devices where you can, you can set them to be. Um, only used for certain hours of the day, let's say, so that, you know, like they can only be used during school for emergency purposes, maybe, you know, an hour after school and then at, at eight o'clock at night, like the technology's done, you know, like we're not going to be using that online. You staying up until 11 o'clock at night trying to, you know, watch movies or play video games or something like that. There's also screen time maximum settings, right? Where they just like, you can, you can have your technology, but yeah, once it gets to a certain screen time maximum, then you're done, you know? So you can also block certain websites that you don't want them going to if you think that they're just, not super helpful but i think most of that is on the parents to really just set those kinds of boundaries and be an example and you know hopefully get their kids enrolled in
1: things that are not just technology based absolutely however the potential impact of ai and emerging technologies could positively impact parenting according to a 2021 survey conducted by one poll and sponsored by duolingo abc an app company 74 percent say technology makes parenting less stressful And 79% of parents use technology to teach their kids something new, like even a second language or learning new music. That's really intriguing. And there's real
4: evidence of technology's potential. From the same survey, 81% of parents believe technology is the future of education for their children.
5: I just want to say that there's a couple of cases in which, you know, technology is absolutely life-changing in a positive way. That would be... For example, if you're talking about an assistive technology where, you know, you have a student who can't communicate, but all of a sudden they're able to use a technology-based communication board and they can then all of a sudden communicate with the world, that opens up their entire life for them. And there's also, you know, some kind of technology like now that we have Zoom, you know, that, that brings education to people all over the world. For example, now girls in Afghanistan who have no access to technology are going on Zoom classes because they can't go to school. So These are
1: different cases where I think, you know, you could talk about all the benefits of the technology. It's impressive how technology is making a difference in the education and development of children. But what is really interesting is to see this divide in parental opinions where some agree and some just completely oppose the use of technology with their kids.
4: Yeah, it's clear that technology has brought both challenges and opportunities to parenting, and navigating this digital landscape is no easy task. Especially as a parent, we're learning with technology as it's progressing, And having to learn along with our children could be the real struggle. So are we shaping technology or is technology shaping us?
6: Where did the summer go? Well, our fun fact has us looking at what you would like to do in the fall, which is right around the corner. If you had something you wanted to look forward to, CBS News was interested back in 2017, What that response would be. And number one, cooler weather with 32% nationally. Thanksgiving still feels like a long way off at 30%. Oh, here I am. Football season 19%. Halloween, not current for me, 11%. Apple picking at 3%. And only a 4% volunteer, some other answers. So this caught a lot of the, the choices here actually captured a lot of it for me. No doubt about it. Uh, Normally, it would be the transition from the World Series to football. But given the way the Yankees are closing, but still with a long way to go to make it in the playoffs. So I'm going to go with football. It's going to be a great year for the football giants. Barb?
7: Yeah. fall is such a beautiful time of the year here in the Northeast. It is one of my favorite seasons because the cooler weather kind of clocks in and the trees get very colorful. So it's a beautiful time to be outdoors in the Northeast. The only problem is winter's around the corner. So uh, so anticipating, you know, anticipating the cold and the ice has never been a fancy of mine. But if I had to choose from one of those from that list, I would say I would probably agree with Lee and say football because I usually do make sure that I am back to watch the football giants, whether they're playing at one or four or the the uh, Sunday night game of the week. But uh Or Monday the- or Thursday but- <laughs> or Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But the mornings, especially the crisp fall ones, are reserved for horseback riding for me.
3: So Mary
6: Griffith, what are you looking forward to as the leaves change with the fall?
4: i I love this time of year. It's my favorite season. Um And there's so much that you could do here in the Northeast, as Borah pointed out. And my answer may surprise you. You probably was, you were probably thinking that Halloween is my favorite part of the fall. It's not. I really enjoy apple picking. Um, it's, I have really great memories of, and Jay, I think agrees with me just by what I'm seeing right now. I have really great memories of apple picking with my friends and family growing up. And even as a teenager, which that uh, we could talk about that offline. And I love (laughs) now going with. I love that's now going with my kids. You know, it's yeah. great to see them try to climb the trees, try to reach for the high trees, picking them up to try to get the well, apples really from should... the top of the tree. So, so that's my have favorite.
6: Let me show a marriage pole apple picking day some weekend because it's suddenly right here in the Hudson Valley. You, uh, big, very big,
7: big apple picking, big apple
0: picking. Yeah, we wouldn't have to go very to far to, to do that trip. Uh, I'm in agreement with at least three of you. Uh, Lee, what, what is, is your here? favorite season? We didn't hear. Favorite season question.
6: is, yeah. foot, I mean, fall and football. Ball, I
0: mean, a, football is not a season, but okay, I got it. I see what you're saying. So geological. all four of us, <laughs> so all four of us agree that fall is our favorite season. I'm a, a fall person too. I I uh, do like the cooler weather, but it cooler weather's you yeah, it. Whenever apple picking, I it's so ingrained here where we live, where there. I mean, we have apple trees all over our property that are 100 years old. It's just I don't know. It's part of the... Living in the Northeast and especially in the Hudson Valley is such a part of what we do here uh, and how we live. Here. And, and so I agree. I'm with Mary on that one, and I would love to go apple picking with you and your kids. We
6: gotta make that a date this fall. Yeah. anytime, is Jen. It, you're always is well- it for uh, making pies. Uh, soon thereafter, or do we just eat the apples? I know
7: you like the eating part.ly
6: Yes, yes. I, I thought we were leaving the uh, the big part uh, unmentioned.
0: So your perfect fall day, Lee, is having a slice of apple pie in front of the TV, watching football on a cool day. That, that, yes, that checks yes, most of it. the
6: boxes, yeah. Yes, and uh, I think I covered most of it.
2: That'll do it for Poll hut this week. Poll Hub is produced by the Maris Poll at Maris College in Poughkeepsie, New York.
4: Mary Griffith is our
1: executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. The Poll Hub team includes Ethan Hollis and Emily DuPont.
6: If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review.
1: Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you have questions for us,
7: tweet them at us at Maris Polls.
0: Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub and with any luck, It'll cooperate.
2: Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcast app as soon as it's released. We'll, we'll see you next time. We're just picking apples from the
7: garden. Enjoying memories for God.